began this series in early September by looking at some patterns in the early church described in Acts 2. And what we saw was that being the church means being devoted. Devoted to learning the apostles' doctrine. Devoted to fellowship. Devoted to prayer. And yes, devoted to worship. In fact, in the words of John Stott, our preeminent duty, I like that phrase, our preeminent duty is to worship God. One example is seen in a question that was an attempt to test Jesus. When he was asked by a lawyer, Jesus actually answered the lawyer with the admonition that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, what is most important in life is not what we possess. As important as it is to me, it's not our families. What is most important in life is that we are loving and therefore worshiping God with the totality of our being. That all that we say and do should be from a posture of awe and respect and worship of God. And then we spent two weeks talking about the fact that being the church means being disciple makers. We began by looking at the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And we looked at that first from the exhortation of the Great Commission that as we are going, remember participle, not imperative. As we're going into all the world, the commands, the imperatives are that we're to be making disciples. And we're to do that by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And also by observing them to teach all that has been commanded by Jesus. He said, all that I have commanded you. Then two weeks ago, we demonstrated that a very important part of our beliefs is, is also the devotion to being a part of the ministry of all believers. You know, especially as part of the what's known as the Stone Campbell movement, the Restoration movement, the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ. One of the things that from the time that I was real little that I heard as a part of even my dad's messages was, no, I am here to minister with you. There is no difference between clergy and laity. We are all ministers. And that ministry involves the belief that all of us have been gifted and we have all have different passions. And biblically speaking, these are grace gifts given to us specifically so that you and I can fulfill the one another passages. We're all different parts of one body. And each of us need to be working together so that we can be of benefit and receive benefit from the other parts of the body. I need, I need people to minister to me. And you know, one of the tragedies of Christianity 
as a whole is the number of ministers who go through burnout and or even deep depression and suicide because nobody is offering themselves to be a spokesperson or, or a listening ear. We are all gifted differently. And one of the one another passages that we looked at was Romans chapter 15 verse 14 that says that we are full of goodness. That's right. Even if everything that comes out of you is sour grapes and pickle juice, you still are full of goodness. You're just not letting it out. Paul says in Romans, we are full of goodness and we are filled with all knowledge. And thereby, because of that, we are enabled to instruct one another. Which is why it's important that we understand that being the church means being devoted to the ministry of the apostles' teaching. Knowing the Word. So that when we do speak, we're not just giving our opinions. Now, here's my question. What does it mean to you? Because I can't speak for you. What does it mean to you that you have been commissioned to be a disciple maker? And that you, by means of the Spirit, have been gifted to be a part of the dialogue by which we instruct one another. I believe the early church understood this. And there's an interesting story found in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Peter and John have been taken into custody. They've been arrested. And they've been questioned. And they've been threatened. Kept overnight. And they were questioned by the, the Jewish council, the ruling body of authority for their belief system. And upon their release, they went and met with their Christian friends. And they reported to them the threats that were made by the chief priests and the elders. And listen, guess what happens? We're told that they, that is Peter, John, and their Christian friends, lifted up their voices together to God and they prayed, not that they wouldn't be tortured. They didn't pray that they would be protected. They prayed that the Lord would look upon the threats and grant them, that is the servants, grant them to the opportunity to continue to speak the Word with all boldness. They considered it an honor to be persecuted for what they believed. Now our tendency far too often is that when we get around other people, we tend to become like the group, the crowd. And so if they're doing something that we probably know isn't right, all of a sudden we find ourselves joining in and doing that too, just so that we don't look like we're different, ostracized. They prayed 
for boldness, knowing that that boldness was going to bring them persecution. And what's interesting to me is that the Greek word that Luke uses there, which is translated to speak, it's not the common word used for preaching. But it is a word that Matthew's Gospel uses in reference to what Jesus was doing. For instance, Matthew 13.3. He used parables to tell them many things. That's the word that's used there in terms of speaking the word with boldness. Or Matthew 23, verse 1. Sometimes referred to as a part of the sermon of woes. Where we're told that Jesus spoke to the crowds. It wasn't one of those three-point sermons with a joke and a conclusion. But it was a proclamation of God's Word. And that's what these servants, these friends, not just the apostles, this is what they were praying for boldness to do. My point? That as Christians, being a part of the church means that you and I are to be proclaiming the Word of God as a part of our daily ministry. And again, if we focus just on the word preaching or proclaiming, Mark uses the word proclaim to describe what the leper did. Not what Jesus did. What the leper did when he left and told everybody about how Jesus had healed him. Luke, telling the same story, uses the expression, the, the news, the good news. He was spreading the good news. And I think that enhances the idea that you and I are to be proclaiming the Word. Telling other people. Spreading that good news about Jesus Christ. Also early in Mark's Gospel, Mark 3, verse 14. It tells us about when Jesus is choosing the twelve. And He goes on to say that Jesus commissioned them to proclaim, to be sharing, to be telling. And what were they supposed to be doing? Telling about the kingdom of God. Now, I've chosen as my primary text for today a passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 28. It's a fairly familiar passage where it speaks about the foolishness of preaching. And as we're getting into the text, I want you to pay close attention to how Paulish. Paul admonishes them, that is, the Christians at Corinth, not the minister at Corinth, the Christians at Corinth, he admonishes them to consider their calling. Okay? So let's look at the text. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. Derek Prime has written that what he sees going on in the first chapter of Corinthians is that Paul is defining what Christian commitment, what Christians being devoted is all about. And in the verses that preceded the text that I chose to read, in verses 11 to 17, Paul begins by saying that professing to be a Christian, to be a part of the church, means, first of all, that a person is making a commitment to Jesus Christ. A commitment above all other allegiances. And interestingly, there's been a lot of research over the last five years that I know about a lot of reading that's taken place to demonstrate that in the first century, the word faith, pistes, was not a word that meant something that we have in our head as a propositional fact. We are saved by faith, but that's not something that we believe in our head as a propositional fact. The word meant something that was akin to allegiance and loyalty. We are saved by our allegiance to and our loyalty to that information that we have received. Secondly, he goes on to say that there is also a commitment to harmony. We talked about this in terms of how being devoted to fellowship was a part of the early church. Striving to be in harmony. To be united to and with other believers. To be a body. To be a family. And thirdly, Derek Prime says that in the first verse of what I chose to be our text, verse 17, being devoted, being committed means being committed to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I seriously question how much a person is a believer if they are not 
willing to be a disciple maker. It's not just about sitting back and being entertained and doing our thing. It's about spreading the good news to others, being obedient to the Word of God. And, and you know, let me say this before I go any further. The main thrust of the biblical teaching about preaching, teaching, proclaiming, telling, witnessing, the main thrust is about who, not about what. Or excuse me, I said it backwards. The main thrust is not about who, but it is about what. Go back to verse 21 of our text. Paul wrote that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The who is assumed. It's all of us who believe and profess to be Christians. It's our, our task. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. As to those who have been baptized into Christ, Paul writes, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he could write a letter to Philemon saying, Take Onesimus, who was your slave, and treat him like a brother. Yeah, he's still going to be your slave, but don't treat him like a slave. Treat him like a brother because those distinctions don't matter anymore. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, Eddie read the passage for us. Peter stressed that what was taking place was a prophecy fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in which your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and the Spirit would be poured out on the male servants and the female servants. Acts 18, Apollos, who was a man competent, it says in the Scriptures, though he knew only the baptism of John, was taken aside and Luke tells us, and it was explained to him the way of God more accurately by Priscilla and Aquila. And don't think it's an accident that Luke mentioned the wife's name first. Because you didn't do that in that day. Luke emphasized Priscilla's name first because Priscilla was the one doing the majority of the teaching. There'd have been no other reason for him to have done that. Romans 16. It is Phoebe who delivers the letter to the Roman Christians and she is described as a deacon, not a servant, as most of the translations say. The Greek word is diakonos, and in fact it's not even the female form of the word meaning female servant. It is diakonos recognizing the official stature that she had as a servant of the church at Chantria. You see, it's not about gender. It's about giftedness by the Holy Spirit, by passions, and by our setting. That is our spiritual GPS. Now that's my introduction to today's message. So let me see if I can get through the message in a timely manner here. There are three areas of tension that I want to focus on this morning regarding our proclamation of the Word. 
the content of what we're to be proclaiming, the confidence that we should have regarding that content, and the challenge that we should be directing to the people and with each other. And each of these three areas has a tension that exists along with it. So let me begin, first of all, with the content and thereby the tension of the context. I've learned by means of my wife and daughter and some things I knew earlier in life uh, because when I was still young, ladies, I could take a pattern and I would know what that arrow on the pattern meant with regard to the fabric and how you were supposed to put it on the piece of fabric with the line that the fabric was running in. Uh, but I, I've learned that especially in basket weaving, there's a very important aspect that determines both the shape and thereby the appearance of the item that's being produced. It's known as the warp and the woof. Their designations for the threads in a woven fabric uh, or the grasses and reeds in a basket so that the warp identifies the fixed threads running the lengthwise and the woof represents the crossing to give the texture of the fabric and, and the, the appearance. Christian historian Stephen Neal has applied that concept of warp and woof to the content that we are sharing and the context in which we find ourselves. The content is the warp. It doesn't change. He says specifically about the task of preaching, preaching is like weaving. There are two factors of the warp and the woof. There is the fixed, unalterable element, which for us is the Word of God. And there is the variable element, which enables the weaver to change and vary the pattern at his will. For us, that variable element is the constantly changing pattern of people and of situations. Seven words that have killed a lot of churches are, we've never done it like that before. Well, what has the way we've always done it produced? What's the effect? In many cases, the way we always did things has resulted in the demise of the congregation. Because what was being done no longer speaks to the needs of those who are now making up the majority of the body. The warp, the received Word of God, remains fixed. If the day comes that I ever preach anything from this pulpit that contradicts the Word of God, I pray that you will have the strength and the wisdom and the ability to ask me to leave. Because there is no other message than the Bible. One of the things that makes the hair on the back of my head stand up straight is for somebody to say, well, I know the Bible says that, but that book's 2,000 years old. That's not relevant anymore. We've learned a lot since then. Really? I don't think so. The content remains the same. But the needs of the world in which we are living have changed. 
And we need to be altering the packaging, the way that we share that message. Secondly, there's the confidence. And then the caution that goes along with it. The 20, 20th century was an epic of doubt. Social stability was shattered by two world wars and by their aftermath. And now in the 21st century, people are floundering in the swamps. And I say swamps intentionally. The swamps of relativism and uncertainty. John Stott, in his little book that we've had passed out, made available, says even the church seems as blushingly insecure as an adolescent teenager. And many preachers conceive their task as sharing their doubts instead of sharing their faith. Now, I'm not calling for presumption on the part of Christians where we feel comfortable speaking for God. And there are people that do that all the time. You won't... You can't imagine how many people that I have come across that have said, well, so-and-so told me that God says this, and I still have never found that in the Bible. And I have said to them, and you won't. In my brief words yesterday as the funeral service was coming to a conclusion and we were about to eat, I shared with them an experience that my dad had experienced with Jerry about how Jared had said that the medicine that he had to take every day was nasty. And then quickly he told my dad, but it's what keeps me alive. And I heard my dad tell that story over and over about the tenacity that Jared had. And I shared with that group yesterday that we are doing a disservice to people if we ever proclaim cliches that try to take away the importance of grief and suffering and troubles. My job as a minister is not to bring you false hope. My job as a minister of Jesus' Word is to trouble you if you're comfortable and to comfort you if you are troubled. God doesn't pluck people off of this planet because He needs another angel in heaven. The next time you hear somebody say that, say, would you please hush? That's disturbing. That's not something our God ever communicates. God doesn't will pain and suffering. God is unhappy with death. He didn't plan on death. Death was a result of humankind's sinfulness. So we need to be sharing the confidence that we have in God's Word. We can say with confidence the Bible says, and we can say we can know the will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, listen, you may discern 
You may know the will of God. But how do we know that? By knowing His Word. Being people of the book. Donald Carson once said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you take verses out of context. I've shared this before. The Bible says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, if I opened my Bible up and said, well, I don't want to preach about that, and I opened my Bible up and put my finger down to another verse, there is a verse that says, now go and do likewise. And I can close my Bible, open it up again, put my finger in, and find another verse that says, what you must do, do in haste. Verses in the Bible taken out of context. No. We need to be those like Paul wrote Timothy who are rightly handling the word of truth. Speaking the truth in love. And then and only then can we speak with courage and conviction. Uh, a vivid example of us having to be cautious I think is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 where the Apostle Peter confessed that there are some things in Paul's letters which are hard to understand. Now, if the Apostle Peter has a hard time understanding the Apostle Paul, how can I ever say, well, Paul's writings are very clear. This is what he means. I have to be cautious. I have to make sure that I am reading, studying, knowing the background, knowing the original setting. comforting. I shouldn't have been too hard on you, Pat. I just don't like it as part of my name. But the fact is, is that part of the role I have as a minister is being a pastor. Because that word means being a shepherd. 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But what does the shepherd do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, what you're hearing there is the fact that even though there is an important task of bringing the Word of God to people, we can't force people. We can't force feed people. Have you ever seen a guy carrying a placard walking down the streets proclaiming a message of judgment that was actually attracting positive feelings from people? No, it drives people away. We've got to show people that we care before they care about how much we know. There's another good example of this found with Jesus Himself because it leads into the, my third point itself. And that is the challenge that we need to be addressing to others and the tension of the compassion that we need to have at the same time. All believers, all 
believers are called to a double ministry of being prophetic, proclaiming the word, and also being pastoral. But we're not to be people who are condemning. And so often, our fingers become fingers of condemnation. Here's my story. Found in the Bible. Some people bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. It was a test. You know how I know it was a test, first of all? They're rather obvious. If a woman was caught in the act of adultery, where was the man? Why wasn't he brought? Because both of them, under the law, were equally condemned to the same punishment. But a woman was brought to Jesus. And they said, well, the law of Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say we should do? What Jesus did. I wish I'd have been there. I wish I could go back and see in an archive somewhere. It says he bent down and he wrote on the ground. He doodled. He drew. Don't you wonder what he was drawing? Because as he was drawing, he also said, let the person among you that's without sin cast the first stone. In my imagination, I have this picture of him drawing a picture that somebody would say, oh, that's me. I'm not without sin. No. They all walked away. And he said to the woman, where are the people that have condemned you? They've left. And what does Jesus say? First he says, neither... Do I condemn you? But then, you see, we're not supposed to condone people's behavior. If you ever say, well, I know the Bible says that, but, you know, it's okay because you're sincere. No, don't do that, please. Don't condone their behavior if it's not in accordance with God's Word. Jesus said, go and sin no more. He called her out on her sinfulness. Isn't that the same thing He did in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well in Samaria? At one point, when she's giving all of these comebacks, didn't He say, um, hey, i got an idea. Why don't you go get your husband? She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're living with is not your husband. You see, he called her out on the wrongness of her behavior. But he still treated her with the love that caused her to keep coming back and wanting that living water that he had to offer. There is no spreading of God's Word if it's not done and filled 
with compassion. And by forgetting the holiness of God's love and His call to repentance, our witness is blunted and we're not, we're not giving the challenge that we need to make. But at the same time, if we're not proclaiming the challenge and doing it with compassion, with care, if we're not confirm, combining firmness with gentleness, if we're not combining discipline with compassion, then we're not being disciple makers. Let me close with this. Time for self-examination. Point of application. You and I, I think, need to be developing, again, what John Stott says when he says we need to be, we need to call for some BBC. Developing the idea of being balanced, biblical Christians. Combining truths which complement one another and not separating what God has joined together because we can't pick and choose from God's Word. Because a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Our task, which, by the way, was not unique to me. I got it from Chad Walsh in some reading I was doing this week. Our task is to be disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. Let's pray.